0: What follows is what was meant to be a brief history of leglocks in BJJ, but has evolved into something rather more complex. Leglocks in BJJ: A short-ish history. Leglocks have had something of a revolution in the recent past. The rise of the Danaher Death Squad coincided with the widespread adoption of leglocks, which, as a family of techniques, have ripped through the submission grappling world. Since then, training in leglocks has progressed somewhat and an ability to defend them has essentially become a prerequisite for high-level competition. But why this glaring hole in the game in the first place? What set the stage for the meteoric rise of leg locks? We take a look at the influences and history behind this aspect of the game. The Judo Origins of BJJ We should start with the early days of BJJ. The sport was born out of Judo, as taught by Maeda, a direct student of Kano, Judo's founder, students in brazil initially in the 1910s carlos gracie and later helio gracie were among his first cohort of students there were other prominent students at the time one of whom was luis franca who went on to found his own jiu-jitsu lineage that later oswaldo fada trained under but there's more on him later judo at the time was a much freer art than its modern iteration before creating his martial art kano trained under two jiu-jitsu schools one focusing on groundwork, and one on throws and takedowns. There were fewer rules and submissions, with no initial ban on leg locks. Extended groundwork made up a more significant part of the game. Judo's headquarters, the Codacan, was founded in 1882, and very few independent rules had been brought in by the 1910s and the start of Maeda's teachings in Brazil. He was a ground fighting specialist, and lightly taught his lessons as such. But this was compounded by the small frame of Helio Gracie causing him to develop his Gracie Jiu-Jitsu into the anti-athletic ground fighting focused path that we see today leg locks were naturally a part of the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu game it could have been much different though had his lessons started a few years later if we jump back to 1898 for a moment we see a match between jiu-jitsu black belts Hiruka and Tanabe where Tanabe broke his, broke his opponent's leg in a submission from the Ashi position This was the beginning of the end for leg locks in judo. Judo did not have its own independent competitions at the time, and jiu-jitsu competition was judo competition. The next year, there was a formal hearing on the selection of rules for jiu-jitsu matches, where Kano called for a ban on leg locks due to their apparent danger. A total ban of ashigurami followed sometime later, in 1916, narrowly missing the migration of Maeda and the beginning of Helio and Carlos's education. There were still leg locks within jiu-jitsu competition, but after a knee bar in high-level competition in 1921, under similar circumstances to the 1898 match, leg locks were officially removed wholesale in the 1925 rule adjustments. Other techniques, namely attacks of the joints aside from the elbow, were also removed from competition at this time. It was actually BJJ's divergence from the Kodokan that allowed leg locks to flourish. The Gracies took up sports some years before the ban of Ashigarami, and in general, the Brazilian scene did not seem to recognise the authority of the Kodokan over their activities. There was also a philosophical divergence that existed, where judo emphasised the importance of helping society and within the way it was taught likely influencing them to remove the most dangerous techniques from their curriculum, while Gracie Jiu-Jitsu concerned itself primarily with the effectiveness of the art and the efficiency of movement. It was a philosophy honed on the streets and the beaches of Rio, not in the minds of philosophers. That said, though there was no outright ban in Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, Kodokan choices did influence the curriculum, and footlocks soon became an underdeveloped part of the game. A Clash of Schools The next chapter in our story brings back the Luis Franca lineage and his student Oswaldo Fada. Franca moved to Rio, as the Gracies had done, and began teaching jiu-jitsu. His own student base appeared to focus on police officers, servicemen, and the poor of the favelas. One of these military servicemen was Oswaldo Fada, who, under the tutelage of Franca, was awarded his black belt. In the 1940s, Gracie Jiu-Jitsu, though well known, was taught at a cost that was simply prohibitive to most people living in Rio. With the mission of spreading Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to people of all class backgrounds, Fada followed the philosophy of his sensei and began teaching in more accessible locations, free of charge. It would appear that where the Gracie lineage saw the business benefits of the art, Fada and Franca focused on a more philanthropic approach. It was at the start of 1950 that Fader opened his own school. In 1955, a statement was made. We wish to challenge the Gracies. We respect them as the formidable adversaries that they are, but we do not fear them. We have 20 pupils ready for the challenge. The challenge was met by Helio, with a student cohort of his own. There is some controversy regarding the victor of the tournament, however Fada's superior knowledge regarding leglocks was more than evident. The next year another contest came, with controversy of a different sort. The leglock prowess of the school was well known, and where the Gracie school did not have the experience in this area, they came out in force to shame the leglockers. Upon each lower body attack being attempted, the Gracie crowd would shout Sapatero, translated roughly as shoe fixer so as to discourage the attacks. By most accounts, the FADA team won that event by a considerable margin. The whole event reeks of classist division. The Gracie students at the time, stemming from the middle and upper classes, shaming the students from the working class backgrounds, using a job that they could very well be doing as a slur. For context, a sapatero is not someone who makes shoes, but someone who fixes old and broken ones. They would not be able to compete with the artisans who would make the shoes from scratch, and would instead serve members of the favela too poor to afford a new pair. I've seen the label of sapatero in this context, described by one commenter as follows. The person who is interested in taking someone's feet is a sapatero, and we are not damned sapateros. We are jiu-jitsu fighters. We are better. Gentlemen fight on their feet. Shame and classist messaging have often been tools for shaping the way in which people fight and conduct themselves. Ground fighting is usually the area that attracts the most shame, which is one of the reasons, amongst others, that wrestling so commonly ends with a takedown. Catch wrestling for years was considered a scrappy, ungentlemanly pursuit, while someone more upstanding would take part in, perhaps, Irish collar and elbow or Cornish wrestling. Catch wrestling was something for miners and weavers, for the working classes. The avoidance of feet has an interesting parallel in Muay Thai, where a teep to the face might be considered a mark of great disrespect. More recently, MMA has been described as human cockfighting, while boxing is promoted as a proper sport. As late as 2017, Meryl Streep, as part of her speech at the Golden Globes, announced that mixed martial arts are not the arts. Considering the setting, the classist undertones were once again all too obvious. It seems that though the Jiu Jitsu community has accepted ground fighting as a completely legitimate way to fight, they have still managed to find something that is beneath them. In this case, it was footlocks. Even in 1996, at the first Pan American Games, Eddie Bravo recounts a story of being on a deep toehold and being booed into letting go. Jean Jacques Machado was his coach at the time, who, upon seeing the reaction of the crowd, had to implore Bravo to let go. Poetically, shoes were launched from the crowd for Eddie's efforts. How times have changed. Footlocks were kept alive in different places in the world. Catch wrestling, as mentioned, had a wide array of footlocks, and through this influence, Sambo adopted a similar game. Footlocked specialists in Japan, such as Imanari and Sakuraba, give evidence of a different culture in East Asia despite the proximity of the Kodokan. The explosion of Jiu-Jitsu in North America, and thereby in communities that did not have the same aversion to Zapateros, allowed the range of lower body attacks to grow and multiply. And I don't think that it's any surprise that it was on the coasts of the USA, with Tenth Planet in California and Henzo Gracie's in New York, that the leg lock game really began to take off in a big way. The Revolution And so, that brings us to the latest chapter in our story, the rise and acceptance of leglocks. Cultural biases and potentially influences of the Kodokan led to a huge deficit in the development of leg lock attacks within Jiu Jitsu. It's well known that Dean Lister said to Danaher, why would you ignore 50% of the human body, And it's important to note that his jiu-jitsu career was precluded by winning titles in national sambo competition as well as high school wrestling. Lister was in a perfect position to explore those techniques which were shunned by the BJJ community at large. The stage was set. The inquisitive mind of Danher, directed by Lister and with access to the resources and students of Henzo Gracie's Academy in New York, set upon exploiting the gap in the submission grappling game. Along with early adopters such as Eddie Cummings, Gary Tonen, and Gordon Ryan, they looked to build on the leglock foundations that had been laid by their predecessors, and so they developed the leglock game in earnest. The now famous systematised approach was clearly tremendously effective in practice, and the next task was to demonstrate this in high-level competition. There were, of course, lower-level competitions where the leglock game was tested, but I think it was in the early EBIs where things became most clear, In 2014, Tonin won the first welterweight EBI, with three of four leglock finishes. In 2015, Gary finished his first opponent in EBI 3 with a heel hook, and Eddie finished his first two opponents with heel hooks, before losing to Tonin. At EBI 4, Cummings finished four of four opponents with heel hooks to take the title. There was a pattern emerging, and leglocks had clearly made an impression in high-level submission grappling. So, what is the situation now? Leglocks have become an undeniable part of the grappling curriculum. Outside of the Danaher death squad, there are far more than individual terrifying outliers such as Roosama Palharas, who I would be remiss for not mentioning in this article. Leglock specialists have become a staple. From absolute MMA, Craig Jones stormed into the BJJ scene and tapped out the legend Leandro Lowe after softening him up with a leglock. Lachlan Giles, from the same team, was heralded as a hero after coming third in the 2019 ADCC Absolute, again using leg locks, this time his own system, different from that designed by the Danaher Death Squad. Finally, in 2021, the IBJJF officially sanctioned no-gi leg locks in their brown and black belt divisions. Times are changing. Leg locks are no longer shamed by the community, and there's something to be said for being the leglock specialist at your gym. Entire games are built around these techniques, and tournaments are won and lost on a proper understanding of them. They can still be a blind spot in gyms though, as it's happened on more than a few occasions where I've visited places, only to find that it is not part of their game, and is something that few there know. I myself realised not so long ago that I have neglected this part of the game, and it was in need of serious development. There is a little way to go yet, until they are fully integrated at all levels. There will be evolutions to come, and I'm interested to see what the future brings us. Thank you for listening to my short history on BJJ Leglocks. There'll be more history episodes coming, so please do like and subscribe, and uh, please give me feedback, as it'll be fantastic to hear what you think. You can find us on all major streaming platforms as Combat Thoughts. You can follow us on Instagram as a blog, as a podcast, and we cover everything from jiu-jitsu to boxing to martial arts in general. So I hope you enjoy.